You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds passed right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome back to another episode of The Spear. My guest on this episode is Major Joe Ritter. Joe, thanks so much for joining me. Happy to be here. So you are an Air Force major. We've had um, a number of Air Force officers as we've kind of sought to kind of expand the bounds of the of the combat experiences that we uh, that we feature. But yours is is particularly unique in that you are an MQ nine pilot. Uh, can you first kind of give listeners maybe a little bit of uh, a sense of your background, what you brought you into the Air Force, and how you ended up flying the MQ-9. Sure. I uh, actually started out as an uh, Air Force intelligence officer, and uh, right out of uh, my initial training for that, I got the opportunity uh, to uh, fill an air crew position, and I was on uh, the RC-135 uh, reconnaissance aircraft, and I enjoyed flying, and I, there's, uh, there's a joke to be made that the air part of the Air Force is the, is the most fun thing we get to do, and I liked the flying aspect of it. Uh, at that time, we were deploying a lot to OEF uh, then and there was a kind of a tactical uh, a tactical ISR aspect to the mission that we did that I found really satisfying and I liked uh, being kind of straddling that line between the two and the three side or the ops and the intel side and uh, I got an opportunity to have a follow-on flying assignment and from there uh, I just felt like I'd flown to the point and I really enjoyed it and I wasn't really relishing the uh, idea of going to a headquarters uh, analysis type intel assignment and at that time the Air Force was uh, fairly uh, desperate for manpower, especially uh, more senior guys to come over to the MQ-9 uh, force. So I uh, essentially uh, set, responded to an email and said, yes, I will volunteer. And a few months later, I found myself uh, learning how to uh, fly the MQ-9. And is that a, you know, is that a typical transition to make from intelligence or from some other field to flying this aircraft? It is not. Uh, just anecdotally from the guys that I know, uh, there's a lot of converted uh, navigators, uh, just as the Air, Air Force inventory of aircraft with navigators uh, gets smaller. Um, but outside of that, uh, most of our manpower are new accessions. So I'm, uh, I'm definitely one of the old guys uh, in the community. Uh, we are very heavy on uh, newly trained uh, lieutenants uh, that are flying with us. And there's a handful of folks who have come over from other platforms, uh, conventional or traditional pilots. Uh, but I would say I am a rarity. I think I know, uh, I know a couple uh, 
converted engineers and a couple converted uh, maintenance guys who are also doing it. But I'm one of the few uh, Intel. And, you know, one of the interesting things is that that we've got unmanned aircraft doing some of the same missions that traditionally have been done by manned aircraft. How different is the training pipeline, uh, say, to fly the MQ-9 as opposed to um, um, a manned aircraft? It's probably the biggest difference. It's shorter, um, and that that for sure. And probably the biggest difference is that it's less of a uh, building block approach, uh, whereas in the uh, kind of a conventional guy who goes on to fly, you know, F-16, F- F-15, uh, you'll start out in a primary trainer and then go to a secondary trainer before you go to your main aircraft. Whereas uh, we had a very short uh, initial uh, flight training in a general aviation type aircraft, and then a little bit of FAM in a uh, primary trainer, but you jump into a uh, first a simulator that was kind of a hybrid MQ-1, MQ-9 uh, tabletop simulator, and then actually flying the MQ-9 uh, very early. And our training is very front-loaded uh, tactically, whereas a lot of the stuff that other aircraft uh, would fo- focus on kind of the basic airmanship. Uh, just because of the nature of the airplane, the automation takes care of a lot of that for you. Uh, we get to introduce uh, tactics fairly early in the training pipeline. Uh, so that's a, a big difference. So the MQ-9 um, is, I guess, more colloquially known as the Reaper. Can you kind of describe the uh, the aircraft and its capabilities? Uh, sure. So the... Uh, uh, the big thing, uh, we're kind of a uh, medium altitude uh, hybrid uh, ISR and strike aircraft. Uh, there's uh, that actually, I think we'll probably get into it a little bit later, but one of the challenges organizationally is uh, we're not always great at figuring out on that hybrid side uh, the best ways to use us. Uh, some communities, uh, Air Force Special Operations has kind of figured out sensor shooter, and I think Army uh, Aviation uh, with your uh, CCA guys have figured out kind of sensor shooter tactics. Uh, the Air Force because uh, we've had traditional ISR platforms that collected, and then we've had traditional, you know, strike and shoot and uh, strike assets that uh, didn't really have any kind of an intel capability. And learning to put those together has been a challenge. But the airplane itself uh, is roughly the size of an A10, uh, obviously somewhat uh, different shape, uh, quite a bit lighter. Uh, it's got. Uh, it's fairly slow. Uh, that's probably our, one of our biggest downfalls. Um, most people, I'm sure, have seen it. Uh, but one of the biggest things that I like to point out is despite the remote nature of it, and some people will call it a drone, uh, the Air Force doesn't like the D word, but it's probably more operator or more pilot intensive than many aircraft, uh, just because of the available automation uh, that's there. So much of that is just to, to make the thing work, that a lot of, uh, a lot of the flying tasks are very much uh, man in the loop. So you mentioned the D word, uh, drone, which is uh, probably the most typical sort of, again, colloquial uh, name for the type of aircraft. But the Air Force calls them what remotely piloted aircraft. I think in joint doctrine, we have UAS, unmanned aircraft systems. Uh, There are also, you know, I think a bit more, a bit older of a term, unmanned aerial vehicles. Why? I mean, can you kind of why do we have so many names for this, you know, this category of, of platforms? I think I know uh, specifically as the Air Force has kind of settled on the RPA, remotely piloted aircraft, uh, what we're really trying to capture is to not 
to not define the aircraft uh, by the way, simply by the way that it operates. Um, you know, a lot of people, if you're a student of aviation, will talk about how the F-16 is a fly-by-wire aircraft, and it was one of the early fly-by-wire aircraft to use essentially an electrical uh, flight control system. And our flight control system just happens to put the pilot uh, removed from the airplane but beyond a handful of things in the Datalink architecture that really doesn't impact how we fight and how we operate. Uh, So, and the airplane can do many, uh, has much, a lot of overlap uh, with manned uh, ISR platforms. In fact, we've had some some manned platforms uh, that were fielded in OIF and OEF kind of to fill the gap because we didn't have enough predators and reapers to go around. Um, I know the Army uh, uses a UAS term, and I believe, correct, that's the joint uh, is uh, UAS. And I think it's just a matter of capturing uh, the fact that, yes, there's not a uh, pink body in there, so that's important. You know, if one, uh, if you have a, a safety issue, like if it's going, if you lose the engine, the important part is not uh, recovering the pilot. It's making sure that the sensitive items on board uh, are taken care of or that you don't crash the thing into uh, somebody. Uh, so the uh, from an aviator's perspective, uh, your emergency procedures or your, your calculus changes because you're not worried about protecting an aircrew as much as you're worried about not hurting someone on the ground. And then uh, access uh, to the platform uh, if you do have to crash land it. But I think it's really because it is a new a new capability, and we've been so busy uh, in combat operations in uh, OIF, uh, OEF, OIR, and now OFS and other campaigns in CENTCOM that we really haven't had the time to sit back and develop uh, necessarily hammer out. a clean way to uh, capture the capabilities across the DoD. Okay. So you know, notwithstanding efforts that uh, we've been making, um, especially lately to kind of expand the types of combat stories uh, that we feature on the spear, the bulk of them are ground combat stories. And what that has meant is that um, for Iraq and Afghanistan, most of them are several years old, at least, you know, it seems like every other episode we feature is from, uh, you know, 2011, 2012 in, in Southwestern Afghanistan, um, in, in a few Argandab and Panjway and a couple of places that keep coming up because that was where the bulk of this action was happening. As these wars have sort of evolved, the ground combat element, at least us involvement in the ground combat element of it has, has diminished, uh, in, you know, to a considerable degree. There are other elements of, of the U S war effort that have not, and clearly yours is, is one of those. So, this is quite possibly uh, the newest, most recent story that we're going to feature because I believe it took place uh, just a couple of years ago in October 2018. Is that correct? That's correct. So one of the first questions that I that I often ask people is, you know, where did this take place? And I love when I kind of asked you if you could kind of describe, you know, the five W's for the for the where section, the location. You've got South Central Afghanistan slash Creech Air Force Base, which is clearly something that we have never. Uh, I've never come across when I'm recording these because there are this this action took place in 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 two locations. Can you kind of describe? Um, I guess first off, what sort of a day of flying a mission like this is like? How it starts? Uh, you know, do you get up and go to work just like any other day? Uh, yeah, probably the biggest difference is. Uh, at the time, the unit that I was part of, we did a, a rotating shift schedule. So I believe uh, this flight was on, I believe it was our swing shift, which was basically a three to midnight uh, flying period. Uh, but yes, it's very, uh, very much kind of normal get up, uh, 
And that is probably the psychology of uh, remote aviation. The fact that you have people that are engaged in combat operations uh, from home station is definitely new. I know the uh, intelligence community and the space community has the same thing, but uh, because we have kind of a kinetic footprint, it it is a little different uh, with the MQ-9 and uh, formerly the MQ-1. But yeah, we uh, would uh, get up, uh, get to work uh, at whatever our showtime was, have a mass brief or a formal brief, which is pretty common uh, throughout Air Force aviation when you've got multiple aircraft. And we'd have a schedule uh, so that we'd know I believe the day before, usually at least who we were flying with, or what uh, GCS or cockpit we were going to fly out of. And sometimes uh, you could infer certain things about the mission, uh, but we were fairly dynamic uh, in the ways, obviously, the, the capability is highly requested uh, throughout uh, the AOR. And at that time in Afghanistan, it was you really didn't know where you were going to go and what you were going to do. Um, we would get uh, a tasking uh, through the Air Force uh, intelligence process, which would tell us where to go. But that often uh, it was very common to be dynamically retasked. So we'd, we'd plan, uh, we would plan for deviations. And, and I, I guess when I, when I was kind of asking about the, the aircraft's capabilities, um, I should have asked specifically this as well. How long can it stay in the air? It depends uh, weather conditions, payload, uh, but normally uh, our uh, takeoff to land time was in excess of 20 hours. So it's a significant part of the day. So you'll have probably the biggest difference uh, is you'll have multiple crews of airplanes. I, I mentioned uh, the, the rotating shifts. It's a very common, the crew change is kind of a normal part of RPA life that isn't really something that happens where a new crew will come in and kind of tap you on the shoulder and take over and start flying that mission. So uh, one of the things that we like to do, like if you're uh, supporting uh, supporting somebody that you're talking to on a radio, uh, is you'll tell them like, hey, we're doing a crew swap. You're going to hear a new voice come up and talk to you. Uh, that's uh, especially obvious if you have a male pilot and a female pilot swaps out. Uh, that That's confused a few people uh, at times. So that's <laughs> something we tend to do. But yeah, you'll have multiple sets of crews that will control the airplane. And as well as uh, we'll have uh, with the uh, launch and recovery concept, what we were doing was we had a forward uh, launch element that actually did the takeoff. And then th- we would do a satellite handover and where I was in what we call the mission control element, we would uh, gain control of the airplane still in the terminal environment, uh, but at altitude and do kind of our uh, set up the, uh, make sure the SATCOM was configured, run some of our maintenance checks and then deal with, get our ATC routing to get out to the working area. So on this day in October, um, 2018, again, when you show up to work at three, was it a case of, Hey, the aircraft's already up. You're going to do, uh, you're going to swap out with the, with the current crew, or was it a mission that you were going to be taking over from the forward element that was going to, going to launch it? We were actually the, we call the gaining crew. So we were the first ones to touch it. Uh, myself and my, uh, sensor operator, uh, it's call signs Fang. Uh, he and I, uh, had to set up the gaining, which is not. Online, it's it's essentially where you pre-flight uh, the GCS, uh, the ground control station, uh, go in and make sure that all your switchology is configured, um, because it is essentially you are taking control of an airplane that's in the air. So you want to make sure that the autopilot settings are matched in the emergency things, and so you haven't done something dumb like uh, leave the throttle in the off position, so your engine turns off uh, when you gain the airplane. So we have a about a 40, uh, 40 to 45 minute checklist uh, that you go through to get the uh, GCS uh, ready for flight and then a uh, some communication uh, 
via the between the forward element and us to ensure that we were ready. We'd get a clearance uh, from the tower uh, for where we were going to go and then uh, climb up to our working altitude and uh, then transit out to the airspace. And how long does the actual transition of control of the aircraft take? Uh, when it works properly, two to three seconds, uh, the screens kind of flicker. There's generally a, a, a kind of an ugly burst of static in the headsets uh, as the radio, uh, from the radio, just as it goes uh, momentarily lost link. Uh, but the way we do it is we're able to get the what we call the return link. So we're able to see uh, out the nose camera or the targeting pod uh, and all the telemetry. So you can see what the airplane's doing and you're seeing the uh, launch and recovery element flying it. So we'd get the, tel- the video and we'd see them, you know, doing the climb out, just looking at the uh, Kandahar horizon uh, as it is, uh, the Afghan sky there climbing out and monitor like, yep, engine gauges look good. All the standard uh, aircraft parameters uh, that we'd look at, uh, fuel, oil, uh, electrics, uh, make sure all of those looked good and looked normal. And then when we're ready, essentially I turn on what they call the command link and then I get control of it. And then I make sure that uh, I can control the airplane from the pilot side, the sensor operator uh, does goes through some checks to make sure uh, everything that he has is working. And then we start the uh, process of going out to our uh, assignment or a tasked working area. So what was the mission that day? So what we had been briefed, um, and this, uh, I'll, I'll preface this by saying I'd not at all a, a spear against any of the uh, intel folks that provide the tasking or the uh, agencies forward that kind of task us. Um, as you know, like with combat operations, things get muddied. And one of the kind of eternal challenges is the air planning cycle doesn't always align well with the uh, planning cycle uh, that ground guys use, especially uh, in the special operations world. So we had, before we walked out to the cockpit for the uh, gaining handover, we'd gotten an intel brief uh, that based on our assignment for the day, we were going to go do uh, target development or pre-soaks for an op area, essentially go out, do uh, FMV of some uh, point uh, named areas of interest, uh, look at some potential HLZs and just do pattern of life type ISR. So that was what we had, that's what we had planned uh, walking out the door. And that was what we expected. Uh, The first indication that that wasn't what was going to happen was right after we uh, got the airplane, I was uh, talking to our tactical C2 trying to request the airspace that I wanted. And there was a ROS or a restricted operating zone that was kind of right where I wanted to be. And uh, that was surprising and a little bit weird. And we were, uh, I think it delayed us probably 10 to 15 minutes just because we were trying to figure out what the ROS was, why it was there and who owned it, who I needed to talk to to get permission uh, to fly into that airspace. What does that mean? Does that mean that there that there are other aircraft probably operating in that area? Uh, potentially. Uh, it's fundamentally, uh, ROS is a kind of a fire support coordination measure uh, where you just throw up a, a center point uh, with a radius and an altitude and says nobody flies in here unless you're talking to the JTAC or whoever it is that's controlling that just to uh, keep the airspace clear so you don't have to worry about uh, deconflicting fires or uh, in a lot of cases uh, you're worried about uh, noise abatement and things like that in an op area. Okay. So how long does it take you from the time you take control to get to, you know, to be on station essentially? It was not a very long transit uh, this day. Uh, It was probably a 30 minute uh, transit, uh, which is uh, 
Again, uh, probably one of the weird uh, parts of uh, remote aviation. A lot of times, once you get in transit, uh, that's when guys will call in a brake crew uh, just to come in, and you've got a essentially you've got the autopilot flying a whatever your uh, ATC or C two assigned routing is, and that's when uh, a lot of us will go either check back in with Intel, like hey, he's hearing anything different, or a good time to uh, make a bathroom break or fill up the coffee cup. And I think. Uh, and I think on this day, I th- don't think we did that because it was short enough. Like we were like, all right, we're just going to stay here and drive in because this is a little bit weird. And I want to uh, get into this airspace. And I had uh, a lot of the communication is uh, via uh, Internet relay chat, which is probably anybody who spent time uh Downrange is probably familiar with Merck. Um, and so we're using Merck uh, to do a lot of our uh, coordination with some of the, with the C2 agencies and with the supported unit. And it was probably 20 minutes into that 30 minute transit when we finally figured out the radio frequency that we needed uh, for that ROS. Uh, so I got that frequency and got that plugged into our line of sight radio. Okay, so for if you can kind of spatially orient uh, listeners, uh, you take off, uh, or the aircraft takes off, you take over, you're flying out to, to a particular point or a particular area is the Roz sort of co-located with that point, or do you have to try to fly through it or around? It is, Where um, is it? Okay. we, uh, we use, uh, kind of a kill box keypad system is, uh, one of the primary ways that we navigate, uh, that the air force does, uh, kind of tactical, uh, airspace management just cause it, it's easy and it, uh, works well for most of the things that we're trying to do. So essentially, uh, the area where this takes place was, uh, I believe it, I'm trying to remember, I believe it was just southeast of Tarankout, uh, for those that are familiar with Afghanistan. Uh, so we're essentially going a straight line, uh, going there and our, uh, start point where we're going to is basically co-located with this restricted airspace. And I'd got, uh, got approval, uh, Got initial it, the way a lot of these approvals work is you'll get approval via Merck, uh, from someone to, all right, you are notionally approved into the airspace, but contact this controller on this frequency prior to entry. So that was the approval we had. We had a kind of a penciled in altitude block uh, that should have been, that was going to be clear, but uh, we still needed to ask permission to enter and operate in there from the, uh, in this case, it was the guys on the ground that we weren't expecting anybody to be on the ground. So again, uh, that was some confusion. And I think most folks who have spent time in uh, OIR or OFS are probably familiar with kind of the challenges of overlapping battle spaces and overlapping operations. So initially we were kind of wondering, is somebody else doing here? And we're working for a different organization and they don't know about it. And we just have to kind of be a non-player or is... Or, and it was trying to figure out what the actual situation was, was a bit of a challenge. And what was the situation? So uh, the f- probably the funny thing uh, that I remember is as soon as we got uh, got the uh, frequency put in the radio, um, and, uh, we were able to hear the uh, JTAC uh, on the ground. And I remember he was uh, giving a report that they were in the middle of a tick. And I think I heard something. He said something like, uh, we're troops in contact, uh, heavy machine gun fire, that kind of a uh, report. They did have another uh, ISR asset that was on station uh, that he was kind of relaying that information to. And I remember I looked at Fang and I was like, all right, dude, this is... Uh, this is different, uh, but at that point, it's very much 
you know, even though we hadn't necessarily briefed to that, uh, we're all trained to close air support and to execute casts. So kind of everything that I had walked out to the cockpit that day thinking pre-soaks kind of goes out the window and mentally we're like, all right, cast playbook uh, where we're going to, you know, go through the cast basics, uh, figure out where our friendlies are, figure out where the enemy is, uh, what direction the threats are, and just get a uh, situation on the battle space. So we, uh, I heard that, I uh, kind of waited for a lull in the conversation, uh, called to JTEC, told him uh, who I was. I didn't give him a full uh, cast check-in just to save time. Kind of told him uh, who I was, that I was an MQ-9, I was coming to him, and uh, I was going to be entering the airspace at uh, whatever altitude we were at that day. And kind of initially, he gave us the task, and he, I could tell the guy was task saturated just by the way he was talking on the radio, and we were hearing uh, sound, we were hearing uh, gunfire go off in the background. So I didn't really want to waste any of his time. And initially, I, I think he gave me the tasking to uh, get visual friendlies and do defensive scans. So uh, we got a friendly location. Uh, the center operator gets the uh, targeting pod, uh, vicinity where the friendlies were, and they were in a, uh, a RON, remain over, uh, or ROD rather, remain over day site. Uh, we got some visual on where they were kind of hunkered up in their fighting position and started uh, scanning around. And we did that for uh, just looking for threats and just trying to get SA on the battle space. We've got a uh, some imagery so we can kind of see uh, what what it looks like, um, but we didn't really have great SA on you know the actual battlefield geometry. So we're trying to look around and look for threats while at the same time build our own picture. And the, probably the biggest limb uh, uh of the MQ-9 is you really can't see a lot with any fidelity. So you have to choose between a really zoomed out field of view, which is great for, you know, getting that uh, bird's eye perspective, or you zoom in and you're looking through a soda straw. So we were kind of doing our best to look around, provide those defensive scans, as well as figure out uh, what was going on Kind of at the same time as this is happening, you know, there's some uh, kind of aviation 101 tasks where we're getting there, like setting up the orbit. I'm hand at that time. I'm hand flying the airplane. So in MQ-9 terms, hand flying is the autopilot is taking care of uh, the altitude and the airspeed, and I'm basically just controlling the left right. So I think I had a setup kind of flying a, a roughly circular type orbit, just trying to figure out what was going on, and I had asked. Uh, our Intel support, uh, if they could uh, get us a product for this, because I don't believe we had a, uh, a GRG, a ground reference graphic. So we were trying to get a, some kind of a product to make sure that we could speak the same language. And we had the uh, terrain reference points and the building numbers uh, that the ground party was going to be fighting off of. And they were trying to get that. And there's a, a you know, basically it gets emailed to the squadron and it has to get uploaded onto a computer where I can get to it uh while I'm flying the airplane, while the sensor operator is flying, I get that loaded into our some of our situational uh, awareness products. And while that was going on, and kind of my intentions divided between the situation on the ground where these guys are in a little bit of a, a tick, uh, it wasn't you know a, a close uh, fight. So they had taken some uh, indirect fire and some heavy machine gun fire. So they were responding to that, but. Uh, probably within two to three minutes of us getting there and starting those defensive scans, uh, we hear that uh, they're going to return fire with mortars and that they are targeting a particular set of buildings uh, where they think they're being fired fired on from. And uh, at that point, it was probably kind of a, 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 a 
big decision point for us because we were thinking, well, we can keep scanning around and it was very open. We didn't see any obvious threats. Um, you know, typically uh, the Taliban is smart enough not to stand out in the open and shoot at Americans because bad things happen to them when they do. So we, uh, I told the sensor operator, I was like, hey, let's go see if we can get contact on their splashes and see what's going on. What does that mean? So we uh, essentially uh, slew the uh, targeting pod over to see where their mortars are impacting and look to see, you know, are there uh, people squirting? Are there bad guys running from those impacts? Are they hitting, uh, you know, are they targeting a particular structure? Do we see uh, outgoing fire or, uh, you know, do we see the Taliban shooting back at uh, our friendly element? So you so, almost then take on the role of like a forward observer. Very, very much. And it's uh, kind of funny, like I uh, nowhere in my training uh, in the MQ-9, I mean, I've been trained to do CAS and trained in, uh, had some joint fires training, uh, but nobody uh, taught me how to uh, spot mortar fire. Uh, it just so happens I heard it done enough uh, listening to fires nets over the years uh, and through some other deployments. I kind of knew what to do. Um, so we got uh, we got the sensor over there. We got uh, contact, or uh, meaning we could see uh, those splashes. And right about the same time, our Intel folks were able to get us the uh, GRG. So we had a common reference. So rather than saying the building at this grid, you hit 20 meters north of it. I actually had a point, so I could say uh, I'm tally impacts. You know, 10 meters east of building 42, or whatever the case was, and. Uh, we started, I just kind of decided like, all right, we're going to try and do our best here to help these guys out because they've got, uh, they're largely alone and in a fight. So we uh, started calling out uh, some corrections and uh, where they were hitting. And one of the rounds had a pretty significant secondary, uh, secondary explosion that went off. So I called that out to the JTAC. Uh, he acknowledged that and we kind of we're all in the consensus that where their rounds were impacting was probably a cache site uh, where the enemy had engaged them from. And uh, as they, uh, I think there was kind of a lull in the mortar fire where they stopped to adjust or I'm not sure, uh, but they, they were, they stopped firing for a little bit and almost instantly we started seeing uh, some movement uh, in the target area. We were using uh, the IR camera primarily uh, and it was very, uh, pretty challenging terrain. It was uh, these kind of low uh, walls and uh, compound type clusters, you know, the mud brick or the mud rock type buildings uh, you see a lot in Afghanistan. And there was a lot of brush around. So we were, uh, we were seeing like parts of people as much as we were seeing actual people in the IR picture, you know, you'd see a, a, a hot spot that was somebody kind of running around a corner uh, so we were trying to uh, identify who these people are. You obviously want to make sure, like, are these enemy combatants or these civilians? What's going on here? Are this, is this a threat? So for us, uh, it probably lost our probably it's, you know, again, I talked about earlier, it seems like the for all the automation that the MQ-9 gives you, uh, in some ways, it's not a pilot friendly airplane. Um because based on what the vegetation was like in the terrain, we were maneuvering pretty aggressively uh, to be able to keep uh, any kind of uh, visual contact on these folks and be able to track them because uh, from our altitude, people get masked fairly easily. They go behind a wall, go behind a tree, or they just get into thick uh, canopy where even with infrared, you can't necessarily see them. So you're essentially kind of standing the airplane on the wing and doing pretty tight turns, which it's not 
going to win any maneuverability contests. Uh, generally, about 30 degrees of bank is the best that we can get, especially when we're heavy. Um, and about how, how high are you flying at this point, typically? We were... I can't remember, but we were probably somewhere between 15 and 20,000 feet above the ground level. Uh, okay. So, you know, add a few thousand feet to that would have been our altitude. Um, I will so, call that our hat height above target. Yes. So, you know, I find this fascinating because this, you launched as uh, an, an ISR mission. And, you know, I think most people are familiar with the fact that that this particular aircraft can, and, you know, both the Reaper and the Predator can do ISR and they can do kinetic strike. Um, I never, you know, and I've watched quite a few hours of, of ISR footage from, uh, from the Reaper. And it's never even really occurred to me that that could be armed and that that mission, that that platform could transition its mission quite quickly. Is there a moment where you sort of shift gears from, okay, we were doing ISR. Now we're, you know, we're, we're clearly in a CAS role or is it just sort of a blurred, you know, we're doing both. From my perspective, it's very much always we're doing both. Um, we fly with the weapons on pretty much all the time uh, as a just in case, uh, just to have that firepower in case we need, in case it is uh, needed, uh, because it is dynamic. Uh, you never know uh, when a tick is going to pop off or something significant is going to happen where you need uh, an air to ground capability. Uh, so I think. I know for me and most of the, and as an instructor pilot, most of the guys that I train, uh, it's when you're actively communicating with a JTAC on the ground, uh, you get who, you know, is a fires type guy, uh, you get into that fires mode where he may still have ISR requirements. You know, he needs you to find where the enemy is, uh, where the threats are coming from, but you're thinking more, uh, cast wise and you're thinking more to the ends of all right i need to uh locate the enemy and if required i'm going to employ uh one of the big differences uh i think is part of that and most i think most people are probably familiar that we've got a pretty robust uh intel component on the back end that uh, deals with the video exploitation and things like that and those guys uh when we get into are really well set up to do uh to create products and to be able to create some cool graphics and to do analysis and things like that. But when we get into a more of a real time, closer support role, a lot of responsibility switches to the air crew, uh, just because the element of time and the fact that we've got the line of sight communications to take a more active role in seeing what's going on and doing some, you know, some real baseline assessment of, you know, figuring out, you know, Hey, I've got personnel moving between these buildings and try to identify and just build battle space situational awareness. Okay. So at this point, then, uh, you, you've gotten on station, there's a tick going on. You initially just kind of try to provide some ad hoc, it sounds like ISR support. And then ultimately, um, you know, you're helping with battle damage assessments. Um, you're helping coordinate, you know, adjusting, you're helping the JTAC adjust fire. Um, was there a point at which you realized, Hey, we're an armed platform. You know, there are targets that we can, we can, we can support by hitting these targets. So absolutely. Um, you know, there's, uh, probably one of the important things, like the Reaper has the reputation as the hunter killer, uh, RPA. I think that's what the air force likes to call it. And at the time I was in an attack squadron and that's what we train to is, uh, to employ weapons, uh, when required. So that's uh, a normal part of our training. So, it's always in the back of your mind. Um, 
you know, kind of going backwards a little bit, I talked about when we talk about kind of handover operations, one of the things that as a pilot I'll always do is uh, run the checks on the weapons and make sure that the weapon status is good um, before I uh, start uh, start a transit because I'm depending on the day that might be the indicator for, hey, we're, uh, we're going to need to get a new tasking or need to potentially look at uh, landing and launching a spare aircraft uh, if required. So it's always, uh, it's always, you know, forefront in your mind uh, that you've got uh, in that, in that case, hellfires. Uh, we've also got some other weapons we can't carry, but that day we had just had a loadout of four hellfires. Um, but so in this it, case, in this case, is it a, when, when you did ultimately um, employ the hellfires, was it, was it a, a situation where you see things happening on the ground and you radio down to the JTAC and, or you, you know, contact the JTAC and say, Hey, this is the target. We're going to, we're going to hit it. Or is it the JTAC calling up and saying, Hey, here are these coordinates. Um, this is what we're seeing. We need you to hit it. Uh, it can, that, that, uh, kind of progression can go a lot of ways uh, and it can bo- both of those things can happen on this day uh, we were trying to tr- we were tracking these guys and I don't want to gloss over that we were tracking these uh, assessed enemy personnel uh, because it was pretty busy and the th- one of the things that I remember from that flight is we're trying to track people and there's obviously too many people running around down there for us to track individuals. So we're trying to kind of jump back and forth between uh, areas of interest and points. uh, What we assessed were probably either cast sites or defensive fighting positions just to get a consolidated picture of kind of the enemy disposition and tell the JTAC what was going on. So I remember at one point I'm talking on the radio uh, while at the same time I'm kind of waving at the sensor operator and pointing at him, telling him to go north, go south, go other ways, just so we can jump back and forth and build a picture. And as we had done that, and that was probably a a 20 to 30 minute process, uh, it became pretty clear uh, that there was kind of a hub. Uh, There was a particular uh, compound, I believe it was the northernmost building in a cluster of these. And that seemed to be the hub that uh, all the uh, personnel were going in and out of. And we'd counted uh, multiple people entering and then leaving and then entering and leaving. And it was also one of the few two-story structures around. So it was pretty clear to see that they had direct line of sight uh, on the friendly position uh, from that second story. And as uh, we're kind of making this assessment, like, hey, all these, this is clearly kind of a, a central point in this, uh, in the battlefield here. Uh, the uh, ground party uh, got some intelligence that said that uh, there was enemy personnel that were moving into uh, moving into that area, and they were going to attempt to uh, recover and consolidate uh, weapons and equipment. And kind of at one point, a lot of the movement seemed like was very consolidated, and we had uh, multiple individuals in the structure. And I remember uh, the uh, Fang made fun of me for because I have I have a reputation of being known to try and try and speak army uh, when I'm talking to the ground so, <laughs> to, to kind of build some rapport. And because normally I kind of Air Force lingo would be like if you need to strike this target. And I remember I I, I asked the guy I said uh, if you uh, are looking for an air to ground solution here, I recommend this. Um, <laughs> That's a, that's a very army uh, phraseology, and uh, I we had a particular variant of the Hellfire that we had that was kind of optimized uh, for that type of a building target. And he said, uh, "Copy that standby nine line." So I told him, "You know, hey, recommend we shoot this missile. Uh, recommend this final attack heading. If 
so in a way we were kind of driving it, but based on our knowledge of kind of the ROE at play and what was going on and the fact we had outside intel coming up from the ground force that this was enemy and the situation was only going to get worse, it kind of made sense that air-to-ground uh, fires were the the next logical uh, escalation and next uh, uh, logical response. So... Uh, but once we'd done that, it didn't, you know, again, everything, nothing is simple in war. Um, and we, uh, the Hellfire, you know, it's a fairly small weapon. So I often describe it as a room killer, not a building killer. So we had this L-shaped compound with this raised uh, two-story structure. And the JTAC had basically said like, yep, uh, we're going to look to employ on this. But obviously once the uh, enemy personnel were internal, we're kind of just guessing on uh, what to shoot at. And he uh, gave us a nine line and uh, so the standard uh, cast nine line to employ the hellfire on this target, uh, did the readbacks and we just happened to be uh, in a position where I'd been holding very close just to get a good uh, near vertical look down into the area to try and categorize what was going on. And we had to uh, drive out and build some distance to take a hellfire shot. And I remember we're like in the turn to coming back around and you know, I'm thinking very military 101. Well, I know I've got this target. Uh, we've, you know, the ground force commander wants it destroyed. It meets all the, uh, it makes sense that uh, we're going to need to engage it. And I just thought, well, for lack of knowing anything better, we might as well uh, shoot the two-story part because that's the one that's got the direct line of sight. So if that's a DFP, if they're using this as a DFP, that's the most likely threat. And I was... It was also uh, the MQ-9, because of our altitude, it's pretty clear that the enemy couldn't hear us or, uh, or see us. So they probably were acting with a little bit of impunity, thinking there was no air support here. I was uh, going to so ask were, about that. Is it, is it, I mean, how, you know, how aware, if you're on the ground, how aware, you know, I've, I've been under uh, Reapers that, you know, you clearly, you can see them. Sometimes you can even hear them depending on their height, but I'm sure I've also been under them when I ne- had no idea they were there. Typically in an engagement like this, are you at an elevation that that the enemy is unlikely to to be aware of your of your presence? We always try to be. Um, sometimes between weather and terrain, uh, you can't be. Uh, if you've got a cloud deck that you've got to get under, uh, some, then you have to think about uh, visual signature reduction, um, and then uh, audible is uh, is a big concern. And I know the Air Force has done some studies into it. I personally will say I'm not smart enough to be able to tell you all the factors that go into whether or not you can hear us or not. I know I've been under Reapers on the Nell, out on the Nellis range and not been able to hear them. And I've also been under them at higher altitude and heard them very plainly. So, okay. but kind of that, and also there's, you have to think about kind of the situation on the ground, like these uh, Taliban guys, if they're in a in a tick and they're shooting back at the Americans, you know, they're probably not wearing ear pro. So they're probably not listening too closely. Um, so we can take a little bit more of a risk with the, uh, with the audible. And then we were just high enough. You'd have to be really looking uh, to see us. And again, uh, at that time they, they were not. Um, and I could kind of just by the way they were moving around, they weren't necessarily running from us. So I was fairly sure that they hadn't seen us. Um, which is tactically in one way is good for us, but in another sense kind of emboldens them. And uh, there's definitely a part of me that when I'm looking at the, the tactical problem here, I'm thinking, all right, if we engage this building, 
We're probably not going to get effects on all the personnel that are inside, but we'll get some of them. We can reduce the most uh, most dangerous firing point or the most, uh, you know, the position of advantage. And we'll also send a message like, hey, there's an air asset up here and that's going to have some impact and we can probably break this tick. Uh, so uh, we're, I've, we're kind of in our final turn to uh, release the missile and I'm um, talking to the sensor and uh, we, we have a, a list of checks that we go through before we employ. And one of the obvious ones is aim point where because the sensor uh, operator controls the laser designator. So the pilot has the trigger and fires the missile, but he's the one guiding it in. So I took, you know, a, a brief second just to look at it and it's like, all right, I'm not going to try and get too fancy here. We're going to shoot the elevated position. And uh, our, our weapon airing profile is such that our the missile's largely coming straight down. Uh, so there's some uh, there's some reasons to do that. And I remember I asked him the question. I, I said, hey, uh, put it on the uh, raised two-story. Any disagreement? And uh, kind of as a question, because if he had seen something uh, different, um, I you know wanted him to speak up. And he said, nope, I agree. And as we were setting up for that shot, uh, I had reached out to the uh, Intel uh, folks just to confirm, uh, you know, that they had tracked, we had multiple personnel in that building uh, that were from this enemy group uh, that we'd been responding to. And they confirmed that, you know, in the two minutes probably before uh, we actually employed the weapon. Um, so we kind of arbitrary, not arbitrarily, but we picked our aim point based on, our best guess and some really, you know, uh, kind of military, military 101, like, uh, we'll shoot the high, we'll shoot the high point, um, and see what happens. Um, so we, uh, uh, turned in, uh, got a clearance, uh, for that strike, uh, fired a hellfire, uh, hit that target, uh, pretty catastrophic, uh, destruction on what we were hitting. Again, these aren't armored buildings or anything. They're largely, you know, mud structures. Uh, so we had, we're, in you know the two to three seconds after impact, we're feeling like we had pretty good effects on that shot. And uh, as uh, kind of as the IR bloom is uh, fading away, and we're getting good fidelity uh, through the pod uh, back on the target area, we saw looked like two individuals, uh, called squirters, kind of egress from the strike site. And uh, I've gone back and reviewed that video uh, multiple times, and I'm. In my opinion, I'm not entirely sure how anybody who was in the targeted structure would have survived, but there's potentially uh, some underground facilities or if they'd had some tunnels or something uh, that we said these two guys squirt out. Uh, so we kind of go from a, we were in, uh, we were in track mode where we were aggressively following folks to a kinetic engagement that took all of maybe two minutes to set up for, took the shot, and then immediately we're back into tracking these guys who uh, ran from the strike site uh, while we're trying to get a uh, kind of a BDA assessment as well. Okay. And then what, what's kind of, what comes next? I guess do you, you, you said you kind of transitioned from kinetic strike back to essentially ISR, um, albeit ISR in a very uh, active, over a very active, you know, piece of land. Um, yeah. do you, do you, you know, are you anticipating having to fire again? Are you, you know, just waiting from, to hear from the JTAC what they need? 
it's a little bit of both. I mean, as a as air crew, you always and anytime uh, you do an attack, uh, you want to have a reattack plan. Um, and we had briefed up as part of that nine line uh, that we were going to do an immediate reattack on squirters. Uh, so if we had any uh, any uh, enemy that we could PID that egress the target area, uh, we were going to engage those folks. And as uh, in that case, uh, these guys got into a tree line so quickly. Um, that we really didn't have an opportunity to maneuver in for a shot and to take a high percentage shot. And the, uh, the ground force uh, continued to get some intel through their capabilities they had down there that there was enemy. And they also uh, knew they were, they were uh, uh, exfilling a uh, period of darkness that day. So they were obviously concerned about how many uh, enemy are around us when we're going to have to have helicopters come in and pick us up. Um, so they, uh, they wanted to engage any other enemy that we could find and that's a place where I think maybe maybe the remote aspect helps us out uh, in the MQ-9 because you can't sit back at ground speed zero and just kind of look and think, like, I've only got four weapons, now three left. And do I want to take a, a low percentage shot at uh, people running through a tree line where I may or may not got effects? Or do I sure. want to let the situation develop and uh, figure out what's going on and preserve and use my ISR while I'm preserving my, my munitions. And that's what we did. Um, I, uh, unfortunately I don't have the video anymore to go back and look, but I believe it was probably about three and a half to four hours of actively uh, tracking guys. And there was a couple situations where we even, uh, we briefed up and we kind of set up for a shot and uh, you know, armed up the air, armed up the system. Uh, and then every time uh, before we could uh, get to clearance and release a weapon, either they would move or something dynamic would happen just to the point that we didn't feel good that it was going to be a high percentage shot. And that uh, that initial hellfire strike had uh, broken the tick. Uh, there was no more fire. There was uh, indications and warnings that these guys were going to be do something hostile. Um, so it's very much kind of a, a waiting game. And... I think what actually what happened in this case is we were able to kind of outweigh the enemy um, because we kept seeing them kind of move around in small groups and, you know, this kind of tactical movement where guys will uh, kind of bound around corners and things like that. And as we're watching these guys, you know, we've seen some weapons on some, some, uh, some without weapons. And, you know, I kind of, I'm actively communicating that to the JTAC that, you know, I've got one guy with an AK uh, entered this tree line and now there's three others that I can't break out anything on them, but they just ran in right behind him. And now they're going to, you know, maneuver through the green zone or through the tree line. And now they're going to dart into a building. And we were, we were tracking them for several hours, uh, just trying to provide real time updates uh, to give the JTAC and the ground force commander a, a picture of what's going on. And, uh, one of the cool things is uh, that we do have a SATCOM capability. So I, uh, it was cool that while uh, we're doing that, I can hear the uh, ground force commander on the SATCOM relaying what we're telling him back to his uh, higher headquarters. Uh, and uh, that was cool because it gives some essay where, and he would provide uh, kind of a standard sit rep thing, his assessment. And I think at one point, like we assessed the BDA from the first shot, we could confirm uh, one enemy killed in action and uh, couldn't confirm anymore just because of the rubble. And he had, I think I'd heard him say something like, uh, we're continuing to develop the situation uh, and I'll provide a report at whatever time. So it was nice that without having to have a lot of communication between, hey, what's the ground force commander's intent here? What do you think? Is we're just listening to 
him provide his report. So I know exactly what he's thinking uh, as we're uh, developing the situation. Yeah. And so did you end up uh, firing a second time? We did. So uh, what kind of happened, and I said, I really think uh, there's probably a joke to be made about, uh, you know, don't be uh, impatient. Uh, We talked about the endurance of the MQ-9 and we're unique in that sense. Um, And probably about three and a half to four hours after that initial engagement, we had a group of uh, these adult male uh, enemy personnel kind of come out of a tree line, almost fairly casually and kind of walk into a small open area and kind of sat down. And uh, at the time I was so focused on just relaying what I was seeing and uh, deconflicting and uh, looking for uh, collateral concerns or any sort of civilian pattern of life in the area. I didn't really guess what was going on, but having gone back and looked at the video and having uh, seen kind of some, uh, you know, some YouTube clips of uh, Taliban guys in action and f- seeing how they fight. I really think what they were probably doing was kind of having a little meeting and it looked like they were actually drawing in the dirt. Like they were probably, you know, drawing up their sand table of what they were going to do next. Um, and we had this group of, uh, I think it was five individuals uh, out of some vegetation in a clear area with, again, in this area where there'd been no, uh, no kind of civilian pattern of life. Uh, we, there, there were some weapons involved uh, on these guys as well. So we kind of told the JTAC immediately uh, what we had. And as soon as I uh, told them that they were in a static position in the open, I think he immediately gave us a nine line uh, to engage that target. So we kind of, again, go through the drill of, all right, now we're no longer uh, in a, uh, ISR mode, uh, we're looking to prosecute this. So it's a matter of kind of optimizing the airplane in terms of positioning for where we want to be and then uh, optimizing the sensor uh, to uh, get the best uh, target, the best picture quality for a uh, laser guided weapon shot. Uh, Picked out uh, kind of the group of where these guys were and picked out an aim point where we thought we'd get the best effects uh, with a uh, single hellfire. and uh, employed that weapon, and we got uh, good effects. I think it was uh, five. Uh, there was five uh, that we could see, and there was five pretty obvious uh, EKA uh, from that strike. And that uh, really kind of—I I don't—I don't want to be too, you know, too full of myself and say that that kind of ended the engagement. But after that shot, uh, there was really very little uh, ICOM chatter that uh, the ground reported or any other kind of threat indications. And we didn't see really any movement. Uh, we kind of, you know, we joked that uh, all the, uh, everybody who was left alive got smart and just kind of egress the area. And uh, we had probably another two hours in the seat uh, flying and we just sanitized uh, the HLZs uh, waiting for the uh, helicopters to come in and pick up uh, the ground party. Uh, they did that without incident. Uh, and I think as they were checking out uh, was when uh, our next crew came to swap us out. And uh, that was the essentially the end of the workday. Then we went through and you know pulled the tapes, did kind of the AAR process of what happened uh, and made sure that uh, everything looked uh, procedurally correct. There were no glaring errors and kind of debriefed the engagements. Well, um, I've been, you know, kind of jotting things down as you've been telling the story, because I've got a million questions. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit cognizant of the time, but I'd like to get through um, through some of them because I just think there's so much that we can still un- unpack. Um, so the obviously there, you know, there are there are clear rules of engagement. Uh, PID positive identification of a combatant is is vital when you're in the air and you're flying from that high. Obviously, you know, you do, as you said, you can zoom in and you can see things. 
is before a strike, is the PID the responsibility solely of you or are you also relying on on the ground element to say, hey, these guys just shot at us and we just watched them run into this building or something? It's a high, it really situation dependent. Um, and without uh, and different uh, different uh, operations have different ROE components. One thing I do want to highlight is that uh, our uh, intelligence component uh, that uh, the Air Force that we fly with, because we have what we call PED uh, processing, exploitation, dissemination, uh, largely imagery analysts uh, that are watching our video uh, every mission. Uh, while those guys. Uh, just kind of some of the technical challenges, uh, the ways that we can utilize them in a cast scenario is limited. Um, they can be really helpful um, just trying to confirm certain things. Uh, there's some kind of indicators, and I mean, I'm sure you've seen it. Uh, just if you look at uh, somebody, you know, from a distance with binoculars, just the naked eye, you kind of have that, I think he's got a weapon, but I'm not entirely sure. And having somebody uh, on the back end that can go back, pause that video, kind of look at it again and review it while we're continuing to track is uh, very helpful, but it's really a hybrid. Uh, in that instance, the probably the number one thing that led me to believe that we were going to go from a observe the situation, observe and assess to uh, take that first hellfire shot was uh, that JTAC uh, called me up to tell me that uh, they had uh, Intel based on the, their capability on the ground that it was we were looking at enemy personnel and that they were moving to that area and they were attempting to consolidate men weapons and equipment and that also that meshed with what we were seeing because I, I kind of spoke to like it was kind of a there was a central hub of where these guys were running out to so we were I'm gonna say all right that's the intel that he's got that's what I see you know I've confirmed we've got some armed personnel in this area. We've got no civilian pattern of life. So it, ultimately in that situation, it's up to the ground force commander, but uh, there's a lot of responsibility on the air crew because uh, they are largely, I mean, the GFC is going to trust what you tell them because we do have the uh, highly capable sensor. So if I say like I'm looking at four adult males with a weapon system, he's probably going to trust me even if he can't necessarily see them based on his uh, position or line of sight. Sure. Um, and speaking of trust, that's a great segue into the next question that I wanted to ask. You know, there have been a number of times when I've talked to army aviators, uh, helicopter pilots who have said it's especially useful when they are co-located in Afghanistan or in Iraq, um, with the ground forces that they're supported because they, they actually know each other. And so they establish sort of a rapport beforehand. And so it just becomes that, that, that coordination just becomes a little bit easier. And, and there is that established element of trust. That's obviously less likely to be the case with uh, fixed wing aircraft that might be coming from out of area somewhere else in country, but it's obviously never the case with, uh, an RPA operator. How much how how cognizant of that are you? And you know, you did kind of mention um, some things that you did to try to establish rapport with the JTAC as soon as you got on station. Um, how important is that to to um, I guess to to try to do so that there is that element of trust? I think it, hugely important. And just to kind of correct uh, one thing, we do uh, we actually 
make a lot of effort to, when we can, build rapport with those guys. Uh, we're able to, I mean, depending on uh, the fobs they're at, uh, we'll do uh, VTCs and things like that. So a lot of times, especially certain mission sets where there's a limited number, the fires team is pretty small. Like you will, especially I'm lucky to be in a, a leadership role where I, I am at a lot of those meetings where I'll know those guys. And I have, uh, I've had the opportunity to uh, take a shot where I, you know, we're using tactical call signs, but I know exactly who the guy is on the other end. And he knows it's me because uh, we've had been on the phone or we've been on VTCs a lot. So that does, it's obviously, you know, virtual like everything else is in 2020. Uh, but that yeah. kind of uh, really, th- those relationships are there. But uh, in this case, it wasn't. Um, I personally, uh, something I teach my student pilots is to, uh, one of the reasons I listen to your podcast is to learn a lot about the supported unit and to be smart enough to have some credibility uh, when they ask you for things. Um, language is big. And then just sound tactics. Like I knew uh, based on the call sign uh, that JTAC had that it was an army controller, not a uh, Air Force guy. Um, so I, I kind of knew that already. And there's just different, some different kind of radio procedures and kind of your cast cadence is going to be a little bit different. Um, so I too, I think a, a really important part is to be smart and sound like you know what you're talking about uh, while at the same time making sure you're not speeding. So uh, one of the things I, 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 you know, I train folks to say is you could say like, hey, I'm looking at, you know, four individuals in a spaced out line uh, moving uh, at random intervals through this village, um, which is a lot to unpack. But when I call up the JTAC and say, hey, I'm uh, tally uh, four adult males uh, moving tactically through the target area. Like that means something and they know exactly what I'm talking about. Or, you know, when I can say that there's a, you know, position of advantage or, you know, kind of using that terminology that is familiar. Um, but really it comes down to just being competent uh, and confident as well. Um, it is, uh, you know, from just in the remote uh, aviation community, because we are so new, uh, a lot of our, uh, a lot of army guys uh, specifically, they know a little bit about us and they know certain things, but they don't, they're not as well versed in our capabilities as they might be with, you know, an A-10 or another type of platform. So they're kind of relying on us to do the best that we can and tell them what we can and can't do. So it's just a matter of uh, being a professional and uh, kind of having your ducks in a row uh, that when you get into that situation that uh, you can do things quickly and efficiently and they're not waiting on you or you're not uh, just, you know, sounding like you don't know what's going on or that you're asking them, you know, silly stuff like having them repeat radio calls or things like that. Uh, You just want to be, you know, clearly uh, on the spot and uh, quick thinking. Interesting. Um, so then the next question I want to ask you is you were flying for um, a number of hours. It sounds like six, seven, eight hours. Or I, more. It's probably, I think it was a seven hour sortie that day. Okay. And so seven hours, the majority of which time is very active. You're doing a lot of stuff. How how do you feel at the end of that? Uh, when you, when you tap out in the new, the new crew, crew comes in are you i mean are you exhausted it's uh it is i've had uh you know i've never uh, had the opportunity to be in a kind of a ground combat situation but uh i've had uh, a lot of kinetic engagements in the mq9 and there have there is definitely uh 
not that uh, there was another event uh, I had in my career where we uh, employed uh, it was five weapons in six hours that I remember. And I remember, you know, kind of, you know, I was focused on all the things I needed to do debrief wise and everything at work. And I remember I got home and I just kind of sat on my couch in my flight suit and just kind of stared at the wall and had, you know, a very kind of epic sigh, like, a, like that was a lot just trying to like, just relax after all that, uh, but yeah, in a, and especially in a close air support situation, uh, you know, I take a lot of pride in knowing that uh, if I screw up, uh, you know, somebody could die. Um, and if I don't, uh, if I don't engage the enemy, somebody could die. Um, so it's, uh, and you, obviously you don't want to uh, have a civ gas either. So you want to be judicious with your fires, but you want to be aggressive and lethal in protecting uh, friendly forces. So it is mentally... Uh, it is stressful. Uh, exposure, I think, helps. Uh, I've had a lot of strikes and been part of a lot of situations. So, you know, the amount of time it takes to kind of recover from that, I think it gets easier. But uh, yeah, it's definitely a emotionally significant event. So, you know, I, I want, as a follow up to that, you know, you mentioned going back and sitting on your couch in your flight suit. Um, most of the people we talked to, in fact, all of them prior to this have been in country um, and so they sort of returned to base and I always ask the question, you know, if, if they went through a particularly trying combat experience, you know, how important is it to sort of process it, you know, that day, that night, uh, over the subsequent, you know, several days versus, you know, do you kind of just put it away and you decide you're going to deal with it when the deployment is over? And, you know, we have this, there's also a transition period for the most part, for most units, you know, you'll spend a few days or, or, or more in Kuwait or in Qatar on your way back from Iraq or Afghanistan. You know, the, the Brits send uh, most of their people to Cyprus for, uh, you know, a period of time as this sort of transition, because we recognize the fundamental difference in the, in the, the sort of day-to-day -day lived experience in a combat zone versus at home, being in the field versus returning to a garrison training environment and, you know, dealing with family and friends and things like that. Uh, is it difficult to make that transition out of, out essentially, you know, out of the, the cockpit, so to speak, and, you know, into your living room? It can be, it can be, it can be weird. Um, I personally, it's never been, I'll say it's definitely been weird for me. I won't say I've ever found it particularly difficult. Uh, there have been times, uh, especially because uh, keep in mind, most uh, most RPA squadrons are doing combat operations 24-7, and most of them have kind of a split between the combat operations side and a an administrative or combat support side. So there have definitely, uh, I know in my own career, I've had to apologize a couple times for uh, snapping at uh, admin folks because I'd just come out of flying and I'd been either doing something that was stressful in a uh, a combat mission and I'd walked you know, around the side of the base and somebody is asking me for, uh, you know, some paperwork or something. And it, you have to kind of deprogram yourself like, Hey, we're not fighting anymore. Like calm down a little bit, but it is, uh, that particular, the mission we just talked about, I actually had some friends that were coming into town. I think that was my Friday and the next day. And I, I do distinctly remember like the next day I was, uh, down on the strip in Vegas, uh, out at a restaurant. And I kind of remember just thinking to myself, like, that's a, it's a very long way from, uh, what I was doing 24 hours ago. Um, yeah. uh, but it is weird. Uh, the, 
people complain that uh, Creature Air Force Base is kind of unique in the fact it's kind of out in the middle of nowhere. So I think it's probably good that uh, everybody has about a 45 minute to an hour drive between work and home just to kind of get yourself, uh, kind of center yourself. Um, I always found that somewhat helpful. Um, you know, it would be, it would be weird to, uh, but at other places, I've flown RPAs uh, at other bases where we didn't have that, where I lived 10 minutes away from where I was flying. And I think I think each individual kind of develops some kind of a ritual. Uh, most of the squadrons, when you go into the secure area, there'll be some kind of a sign that says, like, you're now entering combat operations or something. you're now in a active uh, combat operations floor or something like that. Uh, for me personally, I think... It's always been kind of at the GCS door. Like when I close that door behind me, they, I may still be in wherever I am, but I feel very much like I'm in Afghanistan or Iraq. Like and it probably helps having had uh, deployment experience to those places. So they're not just the geography means something. They're not just places that I've never seen. Uh, but yeah, for me, there is a, there is a transition. Like when I close that door behind me, I'm, I'm there, even if I'm not, at least mentally I'm there. And then when you walk out, you kind of leave a little bit of it behind you. Yeah. Well, well, Joe, thank you very much. I think that that's a, a, you know, probably a good note to end on. Uh, I really appreciate you making time. I think this is going to be a a fantastic uh, addition to kind of, you know, the spear is our effort to explore the combat experience. And and as we started, we realized just how broad that is and how many varying experiences there are. And, and so I'm really thrilled that we get to, got to um, have you on and, and share your story. So thank you. Thank you very much. I'm uh, really happy to get to do it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.